Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Here I am. What are we gonna talk about today? Today we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. This is Gospels part 98. Last week we saw where a man came up to Jesus and was asking him what he must do to inherit eternal life. And we dispelled a lot of misconceptions about this passage that maybe your church or other churches have taught in the past that Jesus was being sarcastic and when he said, you already know the commandments and he listed off, you know, some of the Ten Commandments and others from the Torah and what we actually found out was Jesus was being genuine and saying like, you already know what leads to life and life eternally. That is God's Torah, his expressed will for humanity. Yeah. And the man responds like, I've been doing these as best as I can. And Jesus, like, he offers discipleship to come join the 12. But first he says, like, you, you lack one thing, go and sell all your possessions, give to the poor. And the guy went away. Uh, he was disheartened because he had great possessions. Um, and that led into a discourse that Jesus went after that, and then we also talked about it on the difficulty of entering the kingdom of heaven when you have things that are competing for that top spot in your life that God and his attributes and characteristics should be present in your life and what you're pursuing after. And it doesn't just have to be possessions. And we also said that, you know, rich people can enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying that no rich person is going to be present in the kingdom in the world to come. It's it's a matter of preference and priority. Yeah. And then Peter, uh, the apostle, asked Jesus, like, you know, we've left you, we've left our possessions, we've followed you, like, what's going to be in store for us? And Jesus is showing that, like, not only is there going to be riches and blessings in store, like, in the age to come, but he hints at, like, you get to experience some of that now, like both in experiencing my life as Messiah and then seeing God work after he goes back to his father um, and that upside down nature of the kingdom. Yeah. And that's right. He ends up. So, so he's like, yeah, so you got these guys, it's going to be tough for them to get in. Oh, to get in. Oh, what about us? Oh yeah. You know, guess what? It's, it's going to go well for you. You're doing a good thing. But he ends with, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And you said it. Normally, we look at that, and I think correctly, This is it's a, it's a comparative kind of statement. You know, things are going to get turned upside down. People who appear to be, you know, ahead of others, I don't know, quote-unquote, better than others, or doing better than others, however you want to say it, they appear to be first or ahead. Well, they're going to end up being last, and vice versa. And that's that's because we have to understand you need to serve all to be a, a leader or a ruler or you know that kind of thing. But as I mentioned at the last end of the last episode, that doesn't seem to be his 
his whole point, or maybe not even his point, but it's definitely not his whole point. And I mentioned that this is coming down to some some issue of equality, which is weird because that's different from something comparative. But we got to read it. It's it's a really cool parable, and then we'll start talking about it. So you ready, Samuel? Oh, yeah. All right, let's do it. We are in Matthew chapter 20, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. So this might mm-hmm. feel like a lot, but hang with me because it's just <laughs> one, yeah, one good story. So here we go. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So... The last will be first, and the first last. Okay. (laughs) I mean, it seems really good, good story, you think you're understanding, but that final little bit, it's a little bit weird, a little odd to throw in here. So what do we got? Let's just sort of break this down. You got the master of the house, and let's just say he represents God, and he wants laborers for his vineyard. Now, in this case, these laborers, we're going to say that they are disciples. Or you might even go further and say, no, 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 they're the true disciples working the vineyard. They are, in fact, harvesting or bringing forth the fruit. We might say it that way. Anyway, so this master, and again, we're saying that that's God. He goes out 
early. Now, in this case, that would be uh, like 6 a.m. And he finds some workers. Now, what does that even mean? I mean, in, in the whole history of the Bible, are we talking about people like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Like, like they were the 6 a.m. guys? Or are we talking about Israel or something else? I don't know, but you, you get the idea. We've got some who came early. Well, they agree on a wage of one denarius. So I'm going to say that that denarius represents the kingdom, or you might even say uh, eternal life, something like that. But that's the wage that they get for working. And they actually get to work, like they start doing the work. And, and in the whole story of our Bible, we kind of are left with having to look at that as performing acts of righteousness, doing Torah, imaging God, those kind of things. That's how they get to work. But then this master, we're saying it's God, he goes out again at 9 a.m. and he finds more workers. And so, I don't know, I guess they're also disciples and maybe we could even call them true disciples, whatever. But they're like the very first ones now. But this time he tells them, he's not specific. He only says, you know what? Go ahead and get to work. I'll give you what's right. And they trust him. And they go about their business. And again, now who are these workers? If the 6 a.m. workers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, could we say that the 9 a.m. workers are more like Israel? Or are we talking about, no, some of these are people who, you know, they start serving God at a very, very young age. And other people, you know, they come later in life, later and later and later. Some people on a deathbed or something, right? I don't know. But... The thing is, they're supposed to uh, uh, expect, I think, when you're hearing the story, they're, they're supposed to expect a reduced wage compared to the 6 a.m. group, because he didn't say he'd give them a denarius. He said he'd give them what was right. So that's how it's setting you up, the listener. But anyway, he does the same thing at 12 p.m. He does the same thing at 3 p.m. And he does the same thing at 5 p.m. And here's another idea. So we've got all these, you know, the early workers and the late workers. Well, could it be that some of these later workers actually represent the Gentiles? I mean, we know the whole big story, right? He brings in Israel and he's doing all his work through them. But the whole point is that it's all nations who are gathered together. So maybe these later workers represent Gentiles, right? Who knows? But again, in each of those cases, as the listener of this story, we're supposed to expect an even further reduced wage in each case. It's just normal for the listener. Now, here's another thing. The Torah commands that workers, and I now, okay, let's talk in like the, the practical sense, people who actually do physical labor, they're supposed to be paid on the day that the work is done. But we said that the workers are true disciples, right? And so this fits into that idea of, yeah, there isn't just the payoff at the end of time or at the kingdom or whatever, but we experience some of this in our day-to-day -day lives. So you've got that, that sort of now aspect of the kingdom and the future, the not yet aspect of the kingdom showing up there. So it's kind of cool. Anyway, Torah commands that you pay workers at the end of the day, so this master 
who represents God. He does exactly that. However, this is where Jesus now throws in the twist. The ones who were hired last, they've only worked for an hour. Well, not only do they get to quit work first and come get their pay, and again, you know, there's something kind of, I don't know, rude or unfair about that. Seriously, I've been out here all day. They've been out here an hour and you're calling them and paying them first. That it just, it feels wrong and unfair. And you, the listener are supposed to feel that, but it gets worse. The ones hired last get a full denarius, or maybe it isn't worse. I mean, you're, you're supposed to be thinking, hey, wait a second. If they were supposed to get a reduced wage, but they got the full wage, maybe those first workers are going to get more, right? All of this is a setup. And so now for effect, Jesus kind of skips over all those in-between guys, right? He goes with the last workers, and then he immediately starts talking about the first workers. Otherwise, it kind of ruins the effect. He skips over all those uh, and he says, but we see their disappointment because, you know, when the first workers get up there, they're going, hey, the latest workers got a denarius. I'm definitely going to get more, but they don't. They just get the one. And remember what the pay represented. It was like the kingdom or eternal life. Now, again, as the listener, there's there's some part of you that's supposed to be hearing this and thinking to yourself, man, that's not fair. That's not fair. And if we're being honest, it's because it doesn't seem fair. It's not fair, at least here in this story, right? But the first the first workers grumble. We worked longer. We bore the heat of the day. We, and we could rephrase that to, we were faithful and loyal to you even through long persecution and trouble, right? Yet... You made them equal to us. Are you, are you kind of hearing the background story? Then we get the big finish. The master or God is saying, hey, you have not been wronged in any way. You're getting exactly what you agreed to. So then why are you offended at my generosity? Can I not do whatever I wish with what is mine? And of course, you know, we're thinking about God and we're thinking about the kingdom and eternal life and all of these things. Of course, God's being generous. He's being generous with both the first and the last. But when you begrudge what God does, when it seems like he's being nicer to someone else than he is to you, well, then you've got a bad eye. What do we say a bad eye is, Samuel? What, what, what does that mean in modern terms? Uh, you've caught me on the spot here. I, I forget. Okay. When you have a bad eye, you are greedy or stingy or, uh, you know, like in this case, the opposite of what God is doing. You're not generous. So these first workers, they had a bad eye. They were offended that he was being generous to someone else more than them. Then, and here's what about the older brother in the prodigal story? Isn't it kind of the same? Mm-hmm. He was offended at his own father. Why are you being so nice to my younger brother? 
he has messed up and and like frittered away even your wealth what about me right this is all so very real life christians are often offended when other christians appear to have better lives than their own better moments than their own better better whatever especially when inside their own little pea brains they're thinking to themselves i have been a better christian than they have this is real life stuff this is this is what goes on inside people's heads inside people's hearts it's just real some christians are even offended at uh, we've we've talked about things like deathbed conversions that's not right. I lived my whole life like this. Really? You you didn't care about anything? And then right at the last second, you say, I believe, I believe. And it's, on one hand, there's something understandable to it. But this story helps us to see how all of these kinds of things, it's it's you have a bad eye. You're, you're not seeing things clearly. Jesus finishes. He's got this all-important statement. He says, in the same way in the kingdom the last will be first and the first last and what he's getting at is that the wages are going to be the same for every worker if you are a disciple and then let's we may as well say it, if you are a true disciple whether that is early in life or late in life whether that is you are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you are the Gentile nations, or however it is you want to look at that, the wages are the same, and the wages are the kingdom. And so when we say that the last will be first and the first last, what we're actually saying is that the last is equal to the first and the first is equal to the last. They are all equal. Peter and the other disciples had given up everything to follow him. And in some way, they could also represent like the first, the first of Jesus' disciples. We could say that they are uh, in themselves penitent sinners. They are righteous, whatever. And, and they, they are going to get martyred, right? Their, their life isn't going to be all super fantastic in this life. But there will be others. There'll be later workers. And we could think of these as later Jewish who 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 repent they they become disciples or we could think of it in a in a bigger picture again thinking about the gentiles all the nations but they they are penitent sinners they they repent they become righteous workers true disciples and they may not ever make an equivalent sacrifice they may not ever have to be martyred or this or that or whatever but they are going to be faithful and loyal in a manner that's very similar to even the very first disciples. And when they are, they're going to attain the same end, the same wage, the kingdom. And continuing on the earlier stories, they're also going to experience a hundredfold increase in this world uh, uh, and in the world to come. Uh, They're going to get eternal life. So it's for those that follow after the disciples too. So it's kind of this weird thing. All of this to get to the point of the first will be last and the last will be first. There is a way 
in which we understand that that's comparative, like what you see here in this world, the things that seem awesome and good aren't going to be worth much in the kingdom, and the things things in this world that don't seem all that great are actually going to be super and awesome in the kingdom, so it's a reversal, a turning upside down. But then he's using the exact same phrase here to also show, hey, listen, this thing that we're talking about, this thing for the kingdom, it's for everybody, and it's it's going to have an equal result across time. So it's it's just kind of interesting that he's using the same phrase to actually deliver two very different ideas, not to diminish either one of the other. Man, uh, this is a tough section, Paul. <laughs> okay. I, I hear uh, questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, part of me is wrestling with, like, is this an aspect of the kingdom that has this element of mystery behind it in terms of like we may truly never be able to fully explain or understand the dynamics that were that you painted here of the equality of the kingdom what i mean by that is i feel like if you pitched this teaching to you know several practicing Christians here in the Western world and they hear this, they would, I would say a lot of them would be frustrated in the same way that the people in the parable, the workers did, saying like, well, what is, you know, I've been a, a practicing of, of a, as diligent as I know that I'm capable of follower of Jesus my whole adult life or since my adolescence. And so, like, what, what is the, the gain or... um intrinsic motivation for me to be laboring all these years when I'm going to get the exact same reward as someone who came to discipleship and following at the back end of their life, or like you said, deathbed conversion. And I'm not saying like that it's an excuse for people to go uh, and you know, rampant sinning and egregious things, but even just in a basic sense, like, you know, I someone chooses, like, I'm just going to do whatever I want and live the way I want to live. And, you know, I know that that's rolling the dice to some degree because you don't know <laughs> yeah. whether you're going to die the next day. Like, all you have is the given day. But, I mean, lots of people may be wrestling with that that risk of being like, you know, if if the logistics of the kingdom are we both get the same reward, then what is the benefit of pursuing more uh, than someone that came into the game late, if that yeah. makes sense? Like, I mean, yeah. it, I get the, like, I, we haven't talked about it in this podcast very much, but I kind of get, I'm not saying you're giving off this language, but whenever I used to wrestle a lot with uh, theology of, like, predestination and, uh, election and stuff, I would hear other scholars or even people I knew knew say stuff like, well, who are you to question God? Like, God can do whatever he wants. He can He can save who he wants, and he can, you know, uh, condemn who he wants. And in the same way, it's like, in here you could say, like, or, you know, who are you to question God's generosity? He, he can give his generosity to whoever he wants. And so, uh, you, you see where I'm coming from here? Totally. 
Totally. And it's, so there's two two things. Number one, and and I, I, I get that this can be hard, but what we're not saying, and and I believe this parable is not saying, it's not addressing, it's simply not in view here, is anything about, uh, let's say, specific details of the kingdom, and if there could be rewards in the kingdom itself. So, so what we're saying is the kingdom itself is a reward, eternal life. That, that is a reward. But could it be that in the kingdom, there are rewards of some kind, right? I mean, you hear people talk about things like, oh, I'm going to have a crown, or, you know, I'm going to have more jewels in my crown, or I'm going to, right? People talk about it different ways, and, and I'm not promoting or discounting any of those, whatever. So, But we're not talking about that. Is it possible that there is still some sort of hierarchy in the kingdom? Well, it certainly appears that there is, because in other places where we see the phrase, the last will be first and the first last, it does seem to be comparative. So we've got to separate those two things and say, look, look it. don't make this parable say more than it's saying. It's only talking about the reward of the kingdom and or eternal life. Everyone is eligible for the same reward, and it doesn't matter if it's early or late, but the discipleship has to be true, sincere, real, okay? But that doesn't mean that uh, the guy who has worked all day, whatever, in his experience in the kingdom or whatever, is there also some sort of comparative thing of first or last? And would he would he know some sort of benefit? Yeah, maybe. We just don't know any details about it. We've got very, very uh, sparse info, and it uh, so much of it is symbolic. And I mean, in the end, you just kind of go, yeah, I don't know what it's going to look like. It's just going to be awesome. So that's point number one. And then point number two is this actually really, really gets to the heart of the disciple. And I'm going to use, uh, this is just, it's a story from my past. I actually think we've said this on the podcast before, but I'm going to say it again anyway, because it's just so awesome. So I used to go to this church. It's kind of a crazy church. Pastor was a little bit crazy too, but there were just so many things that came of it that were actually awesome. When you serve God, what is your motivation? Because if you are doing it for, and let's just use the word, reward, I'm just going to say you're doing it wrong. You serve God because of who he is. And here's the way this guy used to say it. He was talking about the way he would serve God, and he'd say, you know what? God can do whatever he wants. And if he sends me to hell, I will praise him all the way there. And and his point was, it doesn't matter what this looks like for me. It, It isn't about me. It's only about God and how I can serve him. My duty toward him as a creature, as his image. And so, I mean, you could take that as extreme or not extreme, however you want to view that, but, but, but it really does get to the heart 
of the disciple. Why are you doing this? What if there was no eternal life for you? You should want to do it anyway. That is a true disciple. That is someone who truly knows and understands who God is, and you do it anyway. But we have this beauty of, but there is, there's the kingdom and eternal life. It's so awesome, right? So those two things together, Samuel, does that help at all? Does it hurt? What does that do for you? Yeah, I definitely think it helps. It's just a, that's a fine line to be balancing in this story, and it's so, it seems so easy to misinterpret uh, yeah. things and like do what my mind just did and not uh, distinguish between access to the kingdom and quality of life and reality when you're in the kingdom and what that looks like in comparison to what you've done like here in your finite life. Um, yeah. Here's another example, Samuel. What is Jesus talking about? When we do these things, we are storing up what? Treasures in heaven. Okay. Now, are those like gold doubloons or something? No. No. We don't know exactly what that is. The easiest way to imagine it is something very generic like favor with God or merit with God. And what does that all look like in the kingdom? Well, we don't really know, but it sounds good. I'm actually glad you brought that up because it could you, could we say that the treasures in heaven should not be equated with the denarius in this parable? The denarius Definitely. is kind of like your entrance ticket to the kingdom, Definitely. and the treasures in heaven are something like additional. Additional, yeah, yes, yeah. I think, I okay. I don't know how precisely correct all of that is because again we're dealing with things that we don't have super precise information about but i think that that is a very good way to imagine it or segregate it even in your brain so that you can see yeah they're very related things but they're different things and and so yeah if that helps then by all means let's do that yeah thanks paul (laughs) i guess we're done for the day (laughs) <laughs> Okie dokie. No. <laughs> no, we should keep going, though. I mean, do you have other questions? Thoughts? I know that uh, was a hard one, but I was excited about doing it. I think it's good stuff. I didn't really have a question other than, let me see if I can find the, now I've lost my place in the text. Uh, I just think it's really cool that at the end of this section, you can see that Oh, here it is. In verse 15 and 16 of this section in Matthew, at the end of verse 16, I mean, and I know, like, Greek and Hebrew don't have, like, quotations in the same way English does, but the way that the English translators have organized this, at the end of verse 15, they used a single, like, not a double quotation mark, but a a single one to show that that marks the end of the parable. And then at the end of verse 16, when he says again, so the last will be first and the first will be last, and it ends with double quotation marks, like it, it, to me, it links it back to the previous section that we talked about, where in verse 31 of Mark chapter 10, like in that section, he, he says that statement, and then he backs it up with this parable, and then he states it again, so it just reinforces the equality part that you are arguing because 
yeah. this parable when you read it does it has less to do with you know upside down nature and more about equality right yeah definitely true and yeah you're right we don't have all the punctuation and stuff uh in the the greek uh and i think what the what the english translators are doing at least we're looking at esv at this moment what they're doing is saying look the quotation starts at chapter 20 verse 1 it's his entire telling of the parable and then those single quotes within that you're talking about that's when someone is speaking so like in the story the master is speaking starting at verse 13 right and he does a single quote that ends at the end of verse 15 that's the end of the master speaking in the story mm-hmm. and then the double quote at the end of 16 is just the end of Jesus speaking the parable the whole parable so yeah but yeah it, it, yeah you're right i think it definitely ties back and i think it's very on purpose he wanted to he wanted to say something different about last and first and it's you know i think both are are both ideas that we've conveyed are very valid. They're just used in different way in different places. Well, for what it's worth, uh, we're going to kind of change topics now. I mean, the the text of our Gospels just kind of keep moving on, but we do sort of uh, go on from the idea of, you know, this rich guy and who's given up what where and, you know, what's the the reward and all that. So what we're going to be reading is Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 to 19, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and Luke chapter 18, verse 31 to 34. And I'm going to read some from, I'm going to read all of Mark and then a couple bits from Luke. I think that gives us the the most complete picture. So here we go. Here's from Mark. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Now Luke, uh, he adds some extra bits of information. So in uh, Luke 18.31, he says, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and Everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. That was kind of an important little bit of info. And then also Luke 18, 34, he adds this little bit. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said also an important bit of information, right? But this this little section, this is all weird. So here they are, they're on the road, they're headed for Jerusalem, and by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, this is the first time that Mark has mentioned going to Jerusalem. Just saying. Like in the anyway, entire book? Uh, well, I, you know, that's a good question. When I wrote that, I'm not 
I, I wrote this a while back, so I'm not exactly sure what I meant. Either it's the first time that he's mentioned this, you know, this final trip to Jerusalem that's going to end in the Passion, or, or it could be his first time mentioning Jerusalem, period. I can't remember what I meant. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, you get the idea. It's something important that Mark mentioned it for the first time. So anyway, Jesus is walking ahead, and it says that some were amazed, and it just calls them they. We have no idea who he's talking about. Who is the they? Is it the disciples? Is it the crowds? And and why are they amazed? Is it because of some of the things that he just said? Or was it because, I don't know, they they knew that he was headed for Jerusalem and, and for trouble and that he wasn't, you know, kind of slow walking it, but that he was walking ahead of everybody? Or I don't know. It's just a weird little statement. But then it also says making it even more weird, you have some who are afraid. And for, somehow it's a separate group of they. I, I don't know what that means, but we don't know any more about them except that somehow they were following. Well, if Jesus was walking ahead, what was the first group doing? I, it, it's just, it, the whole thing is kind of weird. And and what were they afraid of? Were they afraid for themselves? Were they afraid for Jesus? Were they afraid because, wow, this dude, I mean, he's speaking some crazy, awesome truth, and, you know, it's like messing up their life. They're, you know, they're afraid. Am, am I really, you know, going to be included in God's kingdom or whatever? I don't know. And then think about it the other way. Everybody's expecting him to be Messiah. They are expecting him to, what, what's the word I'm looking for? They're expecting him to be seated on his throne. They're expecting him to to sort of accept his kingship. And 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 so maybe they're thinking, you know, he takes up his throne and and you know this could mean big problems with the, you know all the other nations. He you know he's gonna rule over the nations. Well this is going to mean all kinds of war and you know all the I don't know. We don't know what anybody's thinking except that some of them are amazed and some of them are afraid. And and uh, I don't know. We can we can easily paint an image in our minds, but the detail in this is severely lacking. Whatever Jesus, in the midst of all this, they, the the gospel writers felt it was important to tell us this, even though it seems a little confusing. But Jesus he gathers the twelve together, and then then only after we said that people are already amazed and afraid, only then does he give them this detailed bad news. He's basically saying this trip to Jerusalem is going to fulfill scriptures regarding the Son of Man. Now, we know, uh, you know, fortunate uh, uh, that we have hindsight. What we're talking about is this Son of Man. Remember how we've talked about Messiah? There's the Messiah, son of Joseph, and Messiah, son of David. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them was supposed to be a suffering Messiah, the other one a conquering Messiah. It's, it's very interesting that that was in Jewish tradition because there are many ways that that sort of fits with the things we see in the text. Well, he's going to fulfill scriptures regarding the Son of Man, and we know now that that means he's sort of fulfilled the Messiah, Son of Joseph parts. And of course, you know, in the end, this is actually good news in the big story, but can't be great news for him right there. So anyway, first he says that he's going to be condemned to death by the Jews. And what's funny, who does he list in this passage, Samuel? Who are the Jews that condemn him to death? 
uh, the chief priests and the scribes. Yeah. And what group does everybody love to hate that miraculously isn't included in the list? Uh, That would be the Pharisees. Yeah. How strange. Now, do you think this proves that no Pharisees were involved? Absolutely not. No, it doesn't. But it's just interesting. It's focusing on the chief priests and the scribes, most of whom were more in tune with Sadducee sect of Judaism. Just saying. But anyway, he's condemned to to death by the Jews. Samuel, do the Jews have the ability to put anyone to death? Um... Is is there something at play here with the Roman government? Right, yeah, because they are, you know, uh, sort of occupied, oppressed by the Roman government, that ability has been stripped from them. And so they could condemn him to death, but they couldn't actually do it. They had no power. So so Jesus says that first the Jews are going to condemn him to death. But then, he says, they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles are going to abuse him and crucify him, actually do the killing. And I don't know if you've been paying attention as we've been doing the podcast, this is now the third time that Jesus has told them this exact same bit of information. And it's, as far as we can tell, this is three separate occasions that he's telling them this info. So, now, I just want to step back for a second. Samuel, how many Jews across history have died at the hands of, and I'm going to call them so-called Christians, because these Christians blamed the Jews for killing Jesus? How many? Oh, it's got to be millions. Millions, exactly. It's millions. And what's interesting is that this text lays the blame for Jesus' death, if you want to say it that way, if we can even talk about it that way, because the whole story is much more complicated. But this text lays the blame squarely at the feet of everyone, all of mankind, Jews, Gentiles, Israel and the nations, whatever you want to call it. And this is, of course fitting. His death, the the need for his death, all of this, all of mankind bears that. It's got some Romans 3.23 vibes, like, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, that's good. That's good. It's, It's everybody. So, now look at this. It was the Gentiles. They were the ones who mocked him treated him shamefully, spit on him, flogged him, crucified him, killed him. And I'm not saying that because I think that any particular group should should receive any sort of retribution for this. I mean, that's totally misguided. It's been misguided for the last 2,000 years, still is, and it's always going to be. But just notice, just notice, it's everybody. And then here's another one. I'm, I'm trying to bust some things that I've heard around Samuel. I have heard some people offer some pretty graphic explanation of what Luke's phrase, shamefully treated, is actually trying to communicate. Now, let me tell you what it is trying to communicate. 
it's communicating insult or mistreatment or even belittling. And most importantly, whatever it is that's being done, it's being done from a place of arrogance. The imagery is it's, it's that mankind is elevating not just his will above God's, but he's actually elevating himself above God and his Messiah. It's like the epitome of shameful behavior from the creature, man, toward his creator. And so if you've heard a bunch of other things, and I'm not even going to say them out loud because they're just creepy and whatever, just I wouldn't I wouldn't put a lot of stock in that, put, wouldn't put a lot of weight in that. It's just insulting, mistreating, belittling. It's an arrogant thing, okay? Just had to say that. So anyway, he also says on the third day, or depending on which gospel or version or whatever, it might say after three days or whatever, and we've talked about this before, the language and the details, they're just always going to cause people angst. I had to throw in that millennial word there. It doesn't make sense to us today. I get that because we, you know, modern, well, at least for us, modern Americans, when somebody says three days, we're real quick to, you know, okay, that's 72 hours. It's a, it's a very specific span of time, whatever. But back then, their accounting of time, it was just different. And we've said it, any partial day could be included in the total. So even though we know it was only parts of Friday and part of Sunday, they're still included and they're reckoned along with the others. And so you throw it in there. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's three days. Just go with it because that's the way first century people thought and talked. Okay. Anyway, those are just some details I felt like I need to address because people get weird about them. The important part in all of this, Samuel, he's going to rise. He's talking about all of this suffering and death, however it comes about, but he's going to rise. Or I guess we could say be raised. Again, it depends on your version, which gospel, whatever. Now, of course, we look back at this. It's easy for us, quickly, easily understanding that hey, we're talking about his resurrection. And, and this is the first resurrection to eternal life. This is the one that represents God's endorsement of Jesus and his entire life. It represents God's testimony on behalf of his Messiah, right? It's the thing that represents that the way has in fact been opened us up for us. That's what we're talking about. When we say eternal life, that is an image of the garden being restored or fixed in some way. Samuel, what did God do when he kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden? Uh, he put a flaming sword at the gate, cherubim, yeah. blocking the entrance. Yeah, and yeah, they were blocking the way to the garden or the way back to perfection or the way God created it or uh, people might say heaven, or we might say the kingdom, or w the world to come, whatever. Jesus has opened up that way that has been blocked. So that's the important part. And then, you know, it's funny. Luke tells us they just don't get it. It's the third time. They still don't get it. After all this, they still do not understand what Jesus was telling them was about to happen. 
However, Luke also adds, he informs us that it wasn't entirely their fault. It was actually hidden from them. Now, I think it's easy and probably fair. We can look back and openly acknowledge, you know what, there was prejudice in uh, first century Jews, in the disciples, the apostles. There were preconceived notions about who Messiah ought to be. Yes, all of those things are true, but this doesn't negate the fact, Luke is telling us, that at least in some measure, some, some part, this was actually hidden from them. They, they didn't just not understand, they could not understand. It was covered, it was concealed, it was veiled. So, I'm just telling y'all that because I think that you everybody needs to quit busting their chops as if you could somehow have done better. Give them a little break. So anyway, there's that little bit. Don't know what you think of that, Samuel. I, I think it's good. Uh, I, several images come to mind and also a question too. Um, at the beginning of the section when you were talking about those that were following him on the way to Jerusalem, some were amazed and some were afraid. I was yeah. getting the picture of how it must have looked for this Jesus, this Yeshua who grew up, was from Nazareth. Uh, not, it doesn't have the same type of air or authority that like someone who was uh, traditionally trained and given the badge or seal of approval like a Pharisee would have among their community. And, I mean, we have no idea how large this crowd was that was following him, but just trying to put myself in that picture, someone that ordinary having that amount of influence and authority from the people around him following him it had to have evoked amazement and fear both because <laughs> yeah uh, it, it had to have been very uncommon for someone that untraditionally trained to have that kind of sway with people so i don't know if that picture is worthy but it, it, it seemed to help me with those those two verses oh yeah it's a great image great image and i guess my question for this section and I know whenever I say it, Paul, you're, it's uh, hopefully it doesn't evoke eye rolling because it, in some ways it's, it's an unanswerable question, the question of why. Like, why would God, like, keep this narrative of the end of Jesus' life hidden from the Twelve? Like, what is the bigger purpose behind doing that? Because I, I can see clearer like in after the gospels in acts and the letters of paul um talking about the hardening of israel in general like the purpose behind that is to bring in all of the rest of the world to the knowledge and acceptance of god but in this case the only thing that i can think of is that like god was somehow sparing them for their service after the resurrection by like God knew the hearts of these 12 so well that if they had truly understood what the 
end of Jesus's life was going to be like, that they would have fought tooth and nail to the very end defending Jesus to the point where they would have also been killed as well. And by them not understanding and later like fleeing and deserting Jesus whenever all these events take place leading up to the crucifixion, that their lives were spared for future service uh, to both the nation of Israel and the Gentiles after that. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is a—what you've described, that is a great uh, way to look at it or or think of it or speculate about it. And, I mean, uh, mean, we may as well get to the easy answer. Paul, why is God doing this? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And I agree with you. It does seem weird. Uh, It is also, like you said, it's easier to understand— the partial hardening or the the inability to really see and understand that followed after because, hey, you've already rejected the Messiah. You're now going into exile. That all makes sense. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, your your uh, story is as good as any other. Somehow, all we know is that God thought it was a good idea. Mm. And the whole time you were talking about it, you know, of course, I'm still thinking to myself, man, I just have no idea. I don't know. I don't know why God would do that. But all I could think of was, man, I'm just thinking about the, the, when that day of Pentecost comes, Jesus says he's been around, he's done his final ascension, all of those things. And the, the spirit shows up in a way that I'm guessing these people in our in these stories have never experienced before and just imagining how their understanding changed in not just that moment but that moment and all the moments going forward their eyes were opened up to so much but how interesting that it wasn't by Jesus himself, or during the time when Jesus was walking with them. But that comes through the Spirit. And in a way, there's something, again, very encouraging in that, because do we have access to the human person of Jesus walking around on the earth today, Samuel? Nope. But do we have access to that same Spirit? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so there's something encouraging in it. And again, I'm, I, I have no idea if that has even anything to do with your question or any of that kind of stuff. That's just the image that was going in my head that, hey, you know, it paints a cool picture that, that actually is very relevant for us. So I don't know. There was at least that bit of goodness, too. Yeah. And I mean, what you describe is seems like a core struggle for humanity, especially those that are following God when they they have some type of season of struggle or trials testing of their faith and then after that is over and they get out of that season down the road maybe god reveals some more light <laughs> to their situation and they're like right I don't, I don't understand like why why now after it's over do i see the reason instead of like maybe getting encouragement or confirmation while i was in it yeah. Um, and I don't have an answer to that other than to say that seems to be a mystery of God, and this right here with the disciples is an example of that happening for them, yeah. too. Yeah, that's that's good. Good one, Samuel. 
That's good. Well, as great as this has been, we've pretty much blown an hour. So I think we need to, uh, I think we need to hang it up. Get out of here. Hey, we didn't blow an hour. We valued an hour. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. We, uh, what's another word? We expired one. We, uh, we utilized one. Yeah, we, utilized. That's good. Yeah. Something. Spent. <laughs> I don't know. We did something with it. But hey, let's be done. Okie dokie. Thanks for listening to the Okie Dokie Most Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to leave us a rating and review to let us know how this content is impacting your life. You can find out more information about the podcast at www.okidokimos.com. And if you'd like to get a hold of us, please send us an email at okidokimos at gmail.com. But until next time, we pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We'll talk to you again soon.